Well, let's turn to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Father, we do pray and we ask for your blessing tonight. Lord, we intend to cover lots of ground over these next few weeks. We're obviously going to look at the forest rather than just the trees. Lord, help us to, to get the big picture and help us to understand, Lord, the flow and what you're doing uh, in times of old and what you're doing in the world today. I'm sure we'll better understand it as we work our way through the Old Testament over these next few weeks. We pray that you'll speak to our hearts as we move, as we do, as we go through this passage. Speak to our hearts, Lord, in, in personal and in special ways. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting that God summed up the most explosive, the most colossal event in the history of the universe in one short yet powerful statement. The Bible's first ten words are as sweeping and as significant as any other ten words ever written. God sums up the remarkable birth of the heavens and the earth in one sentence. Genesis 1 verse 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This one verse is perhaps the most important religious statement ever made. It answers all of life's vital questions. The who, the what, the when, and the where of life. Who are we? We're God's creation. What is our purpose? Obviously, any creation should bring pleasure and glory to its creator. When did it all occur? In the beginning. That's what it tells us. And where are we going? Since God created us, we can assume that he has a plan and a destiny for us. First, we're told, in the beginning, God. Notice it doesn't say, in the beginning of God. But in the beginning, God. The Bible tells us that God is. He's timeless. He's eternal. He had no beginning, and he has no end. He is from eternity past to eternity future. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 36, King David sings, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Our great God has always been and will always be. Notice also Genesis 1, verse 1 teaches us, In the beginning God created. The Hebrew word translated created is bara, or to create out of nothing. God used no raw materials. He created everything out of nothing. You know, there are skeptics who deny God's creation, and they say the universe originated from random forces and from chance occurrences. They believe there is no God, and the universe is an accident. But that doesn't fit the facts. Everywhere we look, we see evidence of a creator. For example, look how cleverly constructed earth is to support life. Our planet is 93 million miles from the sun. We got us a problem here. Okay, all right. (laughs) It's a long way from the sun. Our planet is 93 million miles from the sun. Do you realize if we were 10% closer, the earth would burn to a crisp? 
If we were 10% further away, we would turn into an ice cube. The air pressure at sea level is 14.7 pounds per square inch. If it were 25 pounds, we'd all be crushed. If it were just 5 pounds, we'd all pop like a water balloon. Look also at the human body. Your heart pumps 72 times a minute, 40 million times a year. Each day, your heart pumps enough blood to fill a 4,000-gallon tank. And it pumps blood through 75,000 miles of vessels running through your body. Understand, if you traveled 75,000 miles, you'd go three times around the earth. An adult body consists of a layer of skin and organs like a heart and lungs and liver and kidneys and eyes and glands. 26 billion tiny cells in all. Yet those 26 billion cells came from a single cell formed at the time of your conception. Life is a miracle. Your eye is also a miracle of engineering. The retina is a thin wall at the back of your eye. It contains 137 million cells, all shaped like little rods and cones. Each of these cells are sensitive to light and send messages to the brain along slender nerve fibers. Your brain also sends messages back out to other parts of your body. Those messages travel by nerves at 300 miles per hour. You tell your hand to move and it instantly moves. To suggest the human body or the world in which it lives happened by chance or accident is just silly. You don't get a perfectly designed world without a designer. To say the world is an accident is the equivalent of saying a hurricane blew through a steel factory and out of the sky fell fully manufactured automobiles. In order to produce intricately and highly designed objects like automobiles, you have to have a designer. And in order to produce creation, you need a creator. There are 31,173 verses in the Bible. But if you can believe this one verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you'll have no problem believing the other 31,172. If God created the universe and the laws that govern it, then he can intervene or interrupt those laws if he so chooses. If God created all things, then parting the Red Sea or causing the sun to stand still or multiplying five buns and two fish or walking on water or even raising the dead are really no problem at all. In fact, if God created the universe, the problems you're facing in your life today are no problem either. Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us, In the beginning God created, or barad, the heavens and the earth. He created all things out of nothing. But there's another Hebrew word that can be translated create. It's the word asah. And when you hear it, think of the word assemble. If we bara this podium, we would produce it out of thin air. But if we assah this podium, it would mean we got some steel and some paint and some varnish and some rubber and we put it all together. And here's where the plot thickens. 
For in Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, I'm going to give you lots of verses tonight. You need them, write them down, jot them down. You can go back and look at them later. In Exodus 31, verse 17, we're told, In six days the Lord made, or Asad, the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. In Genesis 1, verse 1, the universe is created from nothing. But in Exodus 31, we're told that the universe was made out of existing materials. So which is it? Well, I believe it's both. Genesis 1, verse 2 reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The opening scene of creation is not what we would expect. In chapter 1, each aspect of God's creation is considered good. In verse 31, it all gets summarized very good. But here the earth is unformed and unfilled. The Hebrew phrase is tohu wabohu. The terminology usually describes the aftermath of a judgment. So in verse 2, the earth is shapeless. It's a shapeless, empty mess. Just sort of a vast sea shrouded in darkness. Reminds me of a joke I once heard. There's a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. And they're arguing over whose profession should be considered the oldest. Well, the doctor noted that God performed surgery on Adam when he created Eve. He opened up Adam's side, proving that the medical profession was the oldest. The engineer, though, pointed to creation. He said in just six days, God started with chaos and confusion and built a universe. That's when the lawyer jumped in and said, where do you think the chaos and confusion came from? Isaiah 45, verse 18, casts a light on verse 2. Write this down, Isaiah 45, verse 18. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Isaiah says the earth was not created in vain, or tohu, The same word used in Genesis 1 verse 2. In other words, Genesis says the earth was created tohu, unformed. Isaiah says it was not. It was formed and inhabitable. Which is it? Well, perhaps it's both. Some Bible scholars believe that a gap of time exists between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1. When were the angels created? Genesis doesn't say. But we get a hint in Job chapter 38. For there Job, God asked Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together, that is the angels, and all the sons of God or the angels shouted for joy. The implication is that the angels were created before the Almighty went to work on the earth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. We also know that one of the angels sinned. Isaiah 14 Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, describe for us Lucifer's fall from heaven and how a third of the angels joined him in his revolt. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
it could be that Satan's fall brought a horrible judgment damaging God's original creation. Some scholars believe that God created a perfect, beautiful earth and put Lucifer in charge. But the angelic rebellion brought cataclysmic judgments to this pre-Adamic world. Thus, verse 2 of Genesis 1 is essentially the recreating or the reassembling of the earth. There is a Hebrew tradition which explains why Satan fell. Accordingly, he got wind of God's plan to create man and give him dominion over the earth. Lucifer was proud. No way was he going to serve these little dust balls, these little dirt mites. And so he revolted and he tried to thwart God's plan. He first appears in the sea, opposing the creation. Job 26, again, speaks of creation in an unexpected way. It says, God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. Notice, he stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Notice God pierces a fleeing serpent as he creates the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 opens with a battle in progress. We don't usually think of creation as war. But apparently it was the first skirmish in a long-running battle. The serpent appears again in Genesis 3 to tempt Adam and Eve. If Satan can't stop the creation, he tries to spoil it. In Psalm 74, we also see a serpent in the waters of the Red Sea opposing Israel's exodus from Egypt. Once again, Satan failed earlier, and so he tries again to wipe out mankind and God's plan by wiping out Israel in the waters. In Revelation 12, again, a dragon appears at the end of the age to attack Israel. In Revelation 13, verse 1, the Antichrist is depicted as a beast rising up out of the sea. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is the story of a battle that rages in the sea. In Genesis 1, the recreation of the heavens and the earth continue. On day one, God creates the light. He releases energy into the physical realm. Then on day four, he gathers up the light and he deposits it in sun and stars. On day two, God created the firmament or the clouds above the earth, an amazing feat of engineering. Scientists say the water vapor in the clouds weighs a combined 54 trillion, 460 billion tons. Yet God suspended it on day two and now holds it in thin air. On day three, God corralled the waters into seas and produced dry land. He then covered the planet with plant life. He created the grass and herbs and fruit trees. As I've already mentioned, on day four, God created the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars. On day five, he fills the sky. He created the winged creatures. With bir- he filled the sky with created winged creatures or birds. He fills the seas with fish. And on day six, he creates the insects and the land animals. 
And I believe that each of these days was a 24-hour period. After each day of creation, the scripture says, so the evening and the morning implying a literal day. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created everything according to its kind. From generation to generation, you can see tiny little changes in living things. In other words, no son looks exactly like his father. Over time, living things adapt to their surroundings. They mutate. And I, for one, am glad. This means that my kids don't have to be as ugly as I am. Micro changes occur, but not macro changes. Each variety of life produces after its own kind, and they maintains that genre, which means fish don't produce or change into birds, and monkeys don't produce or change into humans. Monkeys produce monkeys, and humans produce humans. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Earth is ready to support the crown of God's creation, the man and the woman. Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All of life was created according to its own kind. The offspring reflects the parent. But God goes one step further with the man. For man alone is made in God's image. Human beings not only reflect their earthly father, but they also bear the image of their heavenly father. And this is what sets them apart from all the rest of God's creation. Man was made in God's image in numerous ways. Our spirituality, the fact that we're moral beings, our morality, our rationality, we think and process information. Our creativity are all unique among God's creation. God and man are also rational, I'm sorry, relational beings. Like God, we enjoy fellowship with one another. Understand, God is a trinity. Notice it says, he said, let us make man in our image. God speaks of himself in a, with a plural pronoun. For God is a trinity. God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, yet one God. And God lives in community. He has always lived in community. The Father and Son and Spirit fellowshipping with one another. Thus, our desire for relationship and fellowship is part of bearing the image of God. Both God and man are also self-determining. We're free to make our own choices. This too makes us in His image. But I think first and foremost, man was made in the image of God in that we were made to rule, to rule. In verses 28 and 29, God tells the humans, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Man was given dominion over nature. Humankind has the God-given authority to rule and use our planet. This idea is the difference between developing and underdeveloping countries today. Cultures reared on Jewish and Christian thought have advanced in science and in technology. They've learned to harness nature for their own benefit. The Bible teaches that humans are separate from nature, and it's our job to subdue it and to use its power. Whereas cultures dominated by paganism and idolatry see man as part of nature or as one with nature, rather than subdue natural forces, man's role is to submit to them. This is why Hindus in India have died of starvation while elephants, believed to be gods, roam the land eating as they please. Pagans in the third world have lived for centuries trapped by their environment, whereas Christians have taken dominion over their environment and have used nature for their own good and progress. Genesis 2 paints a picture of the first man in his new environment. God situates man in a garden of delights. In fact, the word Eden means delights. And understand, even in paradise, Adam had a job. He wasn't lazy. He tended the garden. Sometimes we think the perfect world is one in which we can rest and sleep away the day. But work itself is not a curse. God made man for meaningful activity and service. Notice, too, that man was made on the sixth day. This means his first full day of life was the seventh day or the day of rest. It's interesting. Adam rested with God before he ever labored for God. And here's the lesson for us. So often we jump out and we immediately want to serve the Lord without first learning to rest in the Lord and rely upon Him and enjoy His presence and trust in His strength, not our own. Christians don't just work to rest, they also work from rest. A mist and four rivers watered the Garden of Eden and its trees. Two trees were of special significance Fruit from the tree of life ensured that Adam would live forever. Fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was just the opposite. God said in Genesis 2 verse 17 that if Adam ate of it, he would surely die. God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil within Adam's reach to test him. Here was a way for Adam and Eve to demonstrate their love for God. For love to be meaningful, it has to be voluntary. God didn't stick a gun in Adam's back to make Adam love him. God gave him a choice. Adam could show his love and loyalty for God by staying away from that tree. Genesis 2 verse 7 tells us, The Lord God formed man of the dust. We are just dust. As the preacher says at the end of your road, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. If I were to purchase the raw materials, the raw chemicals that make up a human body, I'd probably get change back from a $20 bill. In a physical sense, mankind is fragile and meager. 
And yet we're told God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Never forget, human life is sacred because it comes from God. The first man, Adam, must have been highly intelligent. The first Mensa member. For he was given the task of naming the thousands of diverse animals that God created. But as the animals passed before him, Adam noticed that they all had a companion. They were coupled, male and female. God was awakening in Adam his need for a wife. After all that God created, he pronounced that it was good, except in chapter 2, verse 18. There God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. And so God performed the first surgery. He put the man to sleep. And he opened up Adam's side. Folks say that God took a rib. The Hebrew word actually means something curved. It doesn't sound as romantic, but it might have been a cartilage or an extra organ. It could have been a rib. But it comes as no surprise to most wives that after Eve was created, Adam was not all there. A piece of Adam was now missing. He would need the woman to fulfill him. And her greatest fulfillment would be be to be by her man. From this point onward, the man and the woman would complement each other. There's an old country song that goes, Without you, baby, I'm not me. That's exactly how Adam felt about his wife. Matthew Henry makes this lovely comment. He says, The woman was taken from Adam's side not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected, and from close to his heart to be loved. This is how all husbands should view their wives. And so this summarizes the Bible's description of God's creation. Get out your sheet now. And you'll see the very first blank. You'll see a C from Adam to the Tower of Babel. You'll see a C. And here's what you're going to write down. You're going to write down creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And we're going to remember it, which is some hand motions here. We're going to, God brought it all together. So we're going to say creation. Everybody got it? Creation. Great. Good, good, good. Can you spell creation? Probably so. At the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve have it made. House in paradise, all the fruit they can munch, and they're madly in love with each other. But in Genesis chapter 3, the trouble starts. They stop putting God first. Satan appears as a serpent and tempts the first couple to eat the forbidden fruit. And as soon as they eat, they become aware of their own nakedness. Understand, up until this point, they've been oblivious to themselves. They've both been God-centered and others-centered. But now sin turns them inward. Now they're self-centered. Adam and Eve's immediate response to their sin was to hide. Their second response was to hurl. We do it today. If we can't cover up our sin, we blame it on someone else. We too hide and then hurl. 
In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 12, Adam even blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames Eve. And folks today are still blaming each other for their problems. We need to take responsibility for our own sin. There's an old AA saying that puts it, If I am not the problem, there can be no solution. Repentance is owning our own sin and the consequences that it causes. Well, in verse 14, God punishes the serpent. He's destined to crawl on his belly. And it's interesting, that means that that before this punishment, the serpent must have had legs. If his punishment is to crawl on his belly, the serpent must have had legs. And what is a snake with legs? It's a dragon. It's a dragon. In Revelation 12, we see Satan as that old dragon, the devil. This is why I hate eating at Chinese restaurants. I always like to get it to go because they all have dragons on the walls. It kind of creeps me out. Eve's punishment for her role in the fall was twofold. She experiences pain in childbirth, and she now is given the tough task of submitting to an imperfect authority. That's Adam. Even in the New Testament church, women are instructed to be submissive to their own husbands. It goes all the way back to the fall. In the church and in the home, men are to lead and women are to follow. Don't let anyone tell you that male authority and female submission is just a cultural construct. Whenever gender roles are discussed in the New Testament, the issue is taken all the way back to the fall. Gender roles are a creation issue, not a cultural issue. When men lead and women follow, we are teaching people about the curse and our need for a Savior. Well, Adam is sentenced last, and from now on, he'll encounter thorns and thistles in the course of his work. At first, Adam enjoyed his job. Tending the garden was easy. It was a breeze. Now he encounters constant obstacles. Work is now a burden. God says to Adam in chapter 3, verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You know, some men go from job to job to job looking for the perfect job. It doesn't exist. All work has its frustrations. A person never gets out of his job all that he puts into it. It's part of the sinful world that we've created. Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to hide their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together and covering their bodies. Instead, God clothes them in animal skins. God puts them in leather which necessitated the death of an animal, a sacrifice. God told Adam if he ate the forbidden fruit, the penalty would be death. From the outset, God taught man that forgiveness required the death of a sacrifice. And so, go back to your sheets. You've got creation underneath it. Write fall, fall. And so we'll have creation, and then we got fall. Creation, fall. All right. When Adam sinned against God, he thought that he knew more than God. 
that he could do a better job without God. So God gave him what he thought he wanted. God banished the man and the woman from the beautiful garden and made the first couple go it on their own. And the first thing they noticed was their two sons were born with the same rebellion in their hearts. Adam and Eve had passed on their sin to their offspring. Understand, sin is hereditary. My father passed to me a sin nature that I passed down to my son. In fact, the whole Adam's family got it from the first man, Adam. Both of Adam's sons, Cain and Abel, were sinners, and they needed to cover their sin. And remembered what God taught Adam, forgiveness requires a sacrifice. Cain, though, was a farmer, and he brought to God a portion of his crop. His gift represented the work of his hands. Abel was a shepherd, and so he sacrificed a lamb. He offered the blood of a substitute. And God? according to his word, accepted Abel's sacrifice over Cain's offering. There are people today like Cain who try to earn God's favor with the work of their hands, kind deeds, religious rituals. They hope they can earn God's mercy, but forgiveness always requires a sacrifice. This is why Jesus came into the world. He is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus shouldered our sin, the sin of all mankind, on the cross. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. It was because of jealousy Cain killed his brother Abel. It was the first murder. And in response, God punished Cain. He became a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Realize Cain and Abel were not the only children of Adam and Eve. Tradition says that Adam and Eve had 33 sons and 27 daughters. Remember, they were perfect human beings. I'm sure they could multiply like rabbits. And they did. That means that Cain, you always heard the question, where did Cain get his wife? Cain must have married his sister. Later, the Bible prohibits marrying family members, but that wasn't the case in the beginning of the human race. That only was made into effect when God gave the law to Moses. As a matter of fact, if you started with 27 couples, and each couple had six kids, that's within reason, within 100 years of the creation, you would have a population of 40,000 people. See, Cain had plenty of women to choose from to start a family. And Genesis 4 through 6 charts the progress of two ancient families descendant from Adam. The family of Cain and the family of another of Adam's sons, a man named Seth. Cain had a son named Lamech, who then had three sons, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. All three names come from a root word which means to produce or to invent. Jubal was the father of cattle ranchers. Jubal, I'm sorry, Jabel was the father of the cattle ranchers. Jubal was the father of all musicians. And Tubal-Cain was the father of all metal workers. Often we're told in our schools that early man was Neanderthal-like. He was primitive and lived in caves and ate, you know, what he could scramble, scramble up. But the Bible implies that the first human civilizations were smart 
and capable of technological and scientific advancement. See, we're not evolving. We are actually devolving. But though early man was highly intellectual, he was also extremely immoral. He was violent and he was rebellious. And God would soon decide to judge the world with water. There was, though, one family that remained faithful to God. It was the family of Seth. And in Genesis 5, Adam's descendants through Seth are named Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Notice in Genesis 5, each of Adam's kin inherited his sin and his end. After each name, we find the words, and he died. Except for one individual, Enoch. In chapter 5, we read, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. One day, God and Enoch took a walk. They walked and talked for a long, long time until Enoch finally said, Lord, it's late, I better go home. And the Lord said, Enoch, we've been walking so long, we're closer to my house than we are to your house, so why don't you just come home with me tonight? Or something like that. We should all desire a walk with God so intimate that God would say that our hearts are more in tune with heaven than they are with earth. Enoch means dedicated. Well, Enoch was a prophet, but it's interesting, his son was a prophecy. Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived, he lived to be 969 years old, became God's prophetic timepiece. His name means when he dies, it will be sent. And Methuselah died the very year the earth was flooded. God sent his judgment. Methuselah's age, 969, is quite old, wouldn't you say? As a matter of fact, all the ages noted in Genesis 5, excluding Enoch, average 908, which asks the question, how in the world did folks live 900 years? Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, God divided the waters below the sky from the waters above. Some people believe the water above referred to more than simply the water vapor contained in today's atmosphere. That before the flood, a dense, highly compacted vapor canopy existed in the upper levels of the atmosphere. The oldest book written, the book of Job, seems to speak of this canopy in chapter 38, verse 9. There God says, When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. You know, aging is a mystery. For some reason, around the age of 25, your body stops rejuvenating itself and you start to die. There are scientists today who believe our exposure to the sun is the chief culprit in the aging process. It's the solar radiation that acts as a trigger that starts our aging. Well, if we were shielded from the sun in the days prior to Noah, we would have lived much longer. It's possible that the pre-flood vapor canopy blocked the sun's harmful rays. Thus, when God floods the earth with water, it's not just rain for 40 days. This vapor canopy collapses. And you'll notice that after the flood, 
human lifespans very quickly diminish to what they are today. Genesis 6 describes the perversion that destroyed this antediluvian world, or the world before the flood. It says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. God is omnipotent or all-powerful. God is omniscient or all-knowing. God is omnipresent or all-present. But God is not omnipatient. There are limits to his long-suffering. Mankind's wickedness had gotten to such a point where God had to wipe the earth of a terrible scourge. Here's what happened. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. There are two interpretations of what happened. Some scholars see the sons of God as the family of Seth, who intermarried with the daughters of men or the family of Cain. Seth's godly family compromised by taking pagan wives. But this fails to explain, number one, why God wiped out the whole earth, nor does it explain the description we have of their offspring, which is in verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This is why I believe more is going on than believers marrying unbelievers. I've seen believers marry unbelievers, and none of them have ever birthed a giant. The phrase sons of God in the Hebrew is the word bini Elohim. This phrase appears four times in the Old Testament, and each time, It's used in reference to angels. In fact, Jude 6 speaks of the angels who did not keep their proper domain. In other words, who did not travel in the lane God established for them. Who did not keep their proper domain. I believe the sons of God in Genesis 6 were these angels who did not keep their proper domain. That a perversion occurred with the human race in this antediluvian world, that fallen angels materialized and impregnated women, producing a distorted race of mutants. These people were freaks of nature. Here they're called giants, and they were common on the earth. Verse 4 calls them giants, which is the Hebrew word nephilim, which means fallen ones. I mentioned earlier, when Satan couldn't stop God's creation, he sought to spoil it. Here he tries to contaminate the human gene pool and engineer our extinction. This is why God's judgment was so severe. This is why God had to wipe out all mankind. God destroys the earth with water and wipes out an entire population, all but eight people. 
The desperate measure was the only way that God could save the human race. It's interesting, all ancient cultures have myths about demigods, beings half human and half divine. Of course, myths are myths, but some of these stories could have been inspired by the actual events described in Genesis 6. Notice 2 verse 4 says that there were giants in Noah's day, and I quote, and also afterwards. Later when the Hebrews spy out the land of Canaan, the spies come back and they report seeing giants in the land. It's the same word, Nephilim. Remember David's famous opponent was the Philistine giant named Goliath, a giant. Here's a Hebrew, there is a Hebrew tradition found in the extra-biblical book called Enoch, where these fallen angels are identified as the ones who taught humanity the evils of black magic and the science of war and weaponry. They also taught mankind how to abort unborn babies. It's also interesting that the subject of Genesis 6 has become a favorite Hollywood theme today. In the 1960s, with Rosemary's Baby, In the 80s, with the movie Cocoon, in both movies, demons or aliens and humans are linked sexually. In the late 1990s, a movie came out called Michael. John Travolta plays a lust-filled angel whose desire is to hit on beautiful women. Hey, this stuff is demonic. In the occult, the highest experience possible is sex with demons. Their offspring are called Moonchild. I believe this was the reason God destroyed the earth with water and chose to start over with this man, Noah. Notice in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Noah was perfect in his generations. The idea was that he had a pure pedigree. Why was that so important at this point? Only if everyone else's lineage had been polluted. Whatever the reason, man's sin became so horrible that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. You know, grieve is a love word. You can anger someone, you can frustrate someone, but you can only grieve someone who loves you. And God loved mankind. That's why he was grieved that man had rebelled and sunk to such depths. And yet notice in verse 8, but Noah, chapter 6, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And realize, Noah wasn't chosen by God because of his righteousness or because of his goodness. He was a sinner like all men. But Noah found grace. Noah was saved by grace, just like you and I are. God will wipe out the world with a flood, but he'll start over with Noah's family. And in verses 14 and 15, God tells Noah to make an ark of gopher wood. Using 18 inches as a cubit, the ark's dimensions were 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high. It had three decks, 100,000 square feet of floor space, more than enough of room to hold two of every kind of animal. And by modern shipbuilding standards, it was the perfect proportion to survive in rough waters. According to flotation experts, the ark could never capsize. In chapter 6, verse 17, God says, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy 
from under heaven, all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Notice, everything which is on the earth shall die. This wasn't a local flood. It covered the whole earth. And there is tremendous geological and historical evidence today for a universal flood. Did you know that all cultures from America to Mexico to the Middle East to China have accounts of a great flood, a boat, and a family who survived? God judged the entire earth with a flood. The only people to survive the flood were Noah, his three sons, and their wives, just eight people. And understand, it didn't matter how good a swimmer you were. If you weren't in the boat, you drowned. And this is also true of our salvation, is it not? doesn't matter how good a person you are. If you aren't in Christ, you can't be saved. You've got to get in the boat. Genesis 8 verse 20 records Noah's first act when he steps out of the ark onto dry ground. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. The first thing Noah does is renew his devotion to God with a sacrifice. And in chapter 9, verses 12 to 16, God hangs a bow in the clouds. The Hebrew word translated rainbow refers to a bow and arrow. It was as if God was hanging up his bow of judgment. The flood was over now. It would never be repeated. God's agenda from here on out until the end of time will be salvation, not condemnation. And so I want you to write down next to the, the F below fall, I want you to write down flood, flood. And how will we, we will, how will we remember it? We'll pinch our nose and hold our breath. Flood. So we got creation, we got fall, and we got flood. Great. Okay, we got to move. Genesis 8, verse 18, lists your grandfather. Every one of us come from one of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. In chapter 10, we have their genealogies. We call it the table of nations. And it shows the people distribution throughout the earth after the flood. If you took the population trends over the last 100 years and extrapolated them back 4,500 years It's amazing, but you would end up with a total world population of eight people. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. God started over repopulating the earth around 2500 B.C. with eight members of Noah's family. You know, today, anthropologists agree that humans can be grouped into three major racial categories, Caucasian, Afro, and Asian. Follow this table of nations and Noah's descendants parallel these same three divisions. Japheth migrated north into Europe. His descendants became the Caucasian tribes. Shem's descendants moved east. He originated the Asian and Semitic peoples. And Ham's family traveled southward. The Afro nations were fathered by Ham. And so the next word you got there is in. Write down nations. Nations. And so we'll remember nations by saluting the nation. Yeah. So we got creation, we got fall, we got flood, and we got nations. 
Great, okay. In Genesis 10, verse 8, there's an important parenthesis in the family of Ham. We read, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The word Nimrod means to rebel. Gives you a hint about where this guy's headed. And that's exactly what he did. God hung up his bow in the clouds and wanted to make peace with mankind. But Nimrod became the mighty hunter before the Lord. One interpretation reads, a mighty hunter against the Lord. The idea is that Nimrod went hunting to draw people away from God and after himself. In other words, he launched a coup against God. He led the first organized rebellion and revolt against God. Nimrod, in essence, was the first Antichrist and a type of the future Antichrist. In Genesis 9, verse 1, God commanded Noah and his descendants, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But rather than spread out and fill the earth, in Genesis 11, we see the population gathering together as one people at one place called Babel. It was Nimrod who formed a one-world government, and he was leading the people in rebellion against God. Nimrod even tries to build a tower to the heavens. Now, surely Nimrod's tower was for stargazing. It was an astronomical observatory built to consult the stars. The Babylonians worshipped the stars. And Nimrod was first to introduce the world to the evils of astrology. But there was another dynamic going on. Notice in chapter 11 verse 3, the people constructing this tower use asphalt for mortar. The Hebrew word for asphalt refers to a waterproofing material which causes you to ask, why would you build a waterproof tower in the middle of the desert? Why? You'd only do so if you were expecting a flood. Nimrod had convinced the earth dwellers that God was a liar, that he and his rainbow couldn't be trusted. And so I want you to write down On the next line, Nimrod. Nimrod. And remember, he was a mighty hunter. He took up his bow and arrow, and so we'll go, Nimrod. A bow and arrow. So we got creation. We got fall. We got flood. We got nation. We got Nimrod. Everybody ready? Almost finished. We're told in chapter 11, verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they they propose to do will be withheld from them. In other words, to break up man's rebellion, God confuses the one language that existed. And people are forced to gravitate into diverse language groups and thus scatter out into all the earth. God ended up moving them out like he'd asked them to do in the first place. Since the people had refused to obey God, to scatter and multiply, God forces the people to do it by confusing their languages. 
And the city where it all took place was given the name Babel, which means confusion. And so write down Babel, Babel. And here's how we'll remember it. Babel. And so, at the end of Genesis 11, here's where we're at. Satan leads a rebellion. He does so by choosing a man named Nimrod. A place, Babel, and a means, fear. Nimrod was able to convince the people that God was the bad guy, that he was the one who needed to be feared. They needed to be afraid of him. And this is the sad state of man today. This is why the psalmist writes of God, no good thing will he withhold for those who walk uprightly. God is not the great party pooper. He's not your enemy. He loves you and he wants the best for you. He has hung up his bow. Now all he wants to do is bless Don't be afraid of God. Run to Him and embrace Him. He has your best interests in mind. Now in Genesis 12, God begins a work of redemption. He doesn't leave man out there. He doesn't leave man in his rebellion. He has a plan to bring man back to himself. God wants to bring him back into relationship. And so He does so by choosing a man named Abraham a place called Canaan, and a means called faith. Satan's scheme was Nimrod, Babel, and fear. But now God's plan centers around Abram, Canaan, and faith. Most people divide the Bible into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I'll suggest to you a better dividing point is before Abraham and after Abraham. Really, the real two testaments of your Bible are Genesis 1 through 11, and then Genesis 12 through Revelation 22. Because that's God's plan to redeem what man lost in the beginning. Before Abraham, God tried to reach mankind on an individual basis, one person at a time. But with Abram, God's plan of salvation zeroes in now on one family, family of Abraham. And with Abraham, God begins a new work on the earth. His plan of salvation and redemption begins to unfold. And it all happened 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago. You can write that in in the last line. 